When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is brought to you by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Stoker, starring Nicole Kidman and Mia Wasikowska, is available starting today on demand. And catch Berberian Sound Studio, available on demand during its theatrical release. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This episode is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SVU6. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode of SVU, prepare yourselves for what will surely be, at least literally, our deepest conversation yet. So we discuss Catherine Bigelow's submarine drama, K-19, The Widowmaker. Plus, I repeatedly apologize to our Russian listeners for Matt's truly awful impression of Harrison Ford's truly awful impression of a Russian accent. Service the boat, Allison! Service the boat! For the last time, we are not on a boat. You will refer to me as Comrade Captain. No, no, I won't. Very well. Later, <clears throat> later in the show, we'll bring you Q shots. Our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites and services. I like you're really getting his accent down by coming in and out of it. Yes, <laughs> it's getting close to triumph. The insult comic dog as well. Uh, these are, of course, all centered around a common theme and inspired by K nineteen, the video maker. We had initially planned for a podcast about movies with really bad titles, but sadly, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything Julie Newmar, was not available on streaming or VOD sites or services right now. And frankly, a podcast about movies with really bad titles without Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything Julie Newmar, would be a sham and a waste of time. So instead, Allison and I are going to recommend some uh, other Cold War movies. And I might say, to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar, a few more times. Allison, what do you think would happen if I said, to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar, in my Harrison Ford Russian accent? I don't know. Give what? it a try. To Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Okay, and now say The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, Part 2. The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, Part 2. Now say Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium. <laughs> Mr. Magorium's Wonder Wonder Emporium. I could keep going forever, but maybe we should move <laughs> All on. Right. All right. Well, let's start things off this week with opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Allison, what's our uh, our first pick this week? Our first pick is How to Make Money Selling Drugs, which is available on demand on June 18th. It's directed by Matthew Cook and executive produced by Adrian Grenier who has also made a few docs of his own. He directed one um, in addition to, you know, 
being an actor. <laughs> um, it's actually uh, How to Make Money Selling Drugs is basically an activist doc that makes a case against the war on drugs as expensive, ineffectual, and biased against the poor. But it has a really dark sense of humor, as you might gather from the title. It actually takes the form, in the beginning at least, of an instructional infomercial about how to make money selling drugs, bringing in uh, you know interviews and testimony from current and former drug dealers up the ladder, including 50 Cent. Uh, and it makes, uh, you know, an argument for regulation and basically just looks at the kind of economic cycle of why people in impoverished neighborhoods would be incentivized to go into drug dealing as mm -hmm. opposed to working kind of, you know, dead end hourly jobs. And then the what all of the things that happen uh, because of the war on drugs and mm -hmm. why it's so easy. People want drugs. And it was hard not to give them it because I can make $50 just like that. Illegal drugs are the $400 billion global industry, and business shows no signs of slowing down. I wanted to make money to go live. The guys hanging on the street corner, they have girls, they have cars, they have money. I'm in. So it's a, it's a pretty broad-scale look at the drug dealing, you know, economy, but it's pretty smartly made and it's really fun to watch, which, which I think is not always something you can say about an activist documentary. So that's How to Make Money Selling Drugs. It's available on June 18th. Also available on demand, Twixt, which we may get uh, around to later in this podcast as well. It is currently available on VOD, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. This is a 2011 horror film starring Val Kilmer and Elle Fanning that really only screened at festivals and then was supposed to get a theatrical release and then never did. And now mm. finally, here it is two years later. Um, this is one of the films from Coppola's recent kind of personal indie film phase, mm -hmm. uh, one that also includes Tetro and Youth Without Youth, both films that I think are really interesting without really working all that well. Um, and Twixt also seems to fall into that, at least uh, from what we've heard from yeah, reviews. Yeah. But that it certainly sounds fascinating in terms of what it tries to do. And especially since Coppola had plans at certain points to kind of have it be interactive, remixable. Remixed, he claimed, yeah, that he was going to be it remixing like, it live. Right, and it's partially in 3D. Yes. You yeah. know, and so it sounds very ambitious, mm -hmm. at least, which is always a welcome thing. Yes. Uh, that's currently available on VOD and available on VOD on June. June 21st is Maniac, which is a remake of the cult favorite 1980 horror film starring Joe Spinell. Uh, a really dark film uh, that, you know, has kind of justly been held up as a, as a kind of like an interesting film from its era in New York, as well as just like a really disturbing film. Mm -hmm. This one stars Elijah Wood in the role, which is kind of an unexpected choice for a, you know, obsessive serial killer, especially if you look at the lead of the original movie. He's not physically at all like Elijah Wood, but Elijah Wood has also done some dark he was in roles in Sin, Sin City. Yeah, he was a kind of really a crazy. He was a maniac. He was a psychopath. He yeah. He was a so. maniac. Maniac on the floor in that movie. Yeah. Right? Now again with the Russian accent. <laughs> no. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> Um, and this one's directed by Frank Calfoon and, and produced by Alexandra Aja. So from the kind of new French extreme school, as I think they're, they've been calling it. Is that what they call themselves? Yes. Right. I don't know if they call themselves that. But That's what you just they, called They them. have been labeled that. Okay. Uh, but anyway, it's actually been fairly well received, which is a tough thing to do when you're touching a kind of cult favorite like mm -hmm. this so you know there's got to be something interesting to it i have yet to see it but apparently it does some interesting things in terms of using 
the point of view of the main character, which is something I always appreciate. Does it have that song in it? Uh, probably. I think probably Elijah Wood sings it as he murders Ooh. people. <laughs> That's why it's so frightening. God, if it doesn't, we just, I think, come up with a better version of the movie right there. <laughs> So that's Maniac. (laughs) It's available on demand on June 21st. And we're very pleased to have Shutterstock.com back as a sponsor of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. And at Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or any other type of film project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They've got clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in high definition. They source the clips from around the world and put them at your fingertips, and many of the contributors to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers. Shutterstock reviews each video individually for content and quality, and they add 10,000 video clips each week. So every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to bring your creative projects to the next level. They make it easy with sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor, and more. And as you find the video assets you're looking for, you can save them to a clip box. Then you can access them anytime and share them with other team members. Shutterstock is a complete offering with excellent customer service, dedicated reps, and 24-hour support throughout the week. They have flexible pricing. You can choose between individual clips or video packs. Download the clips in HD or save them with standard definition or web formats. And they also have a huge image library of photos, vectors, icons, and infographic templates. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. You just start an account and begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like. And you save your video selections you find in your clip box. But then once you decide to purchase, use offer code SVU6 and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use offer code SVU6. We thank Shutterstock for their support. Subject on Q Shots this episode is Cold War movies. Cold War movies. Allison, do we have anything we want to say in a general sense before we get to our picks? Well, I think that cold, the Cold War era made for very convenient villains. You know, we had a whole superpower that we were vying with. Mm-hmm. We had ideological differences, you know, so it made it pretty easy to be like, what's the divide? It's, it's like a fundamental, you know, difference in a belief about what was a proper way to kind of structure a nation Mm -hmm. and then also whenever you're casting it made it so easy because you know then you could use all the white actors that dominate hollywood hey harrison ford exactly well that's maybe but that's the interesting thing about my picks are my picks are i mean they're not all i mean one of these movies is more than 20 years old but it comes from sort of the tail end of the actual cold war so all of my movies actually have the Soviets not necessarily as the villains. In some cases, they're the scapegoats or almost the victims in some ways. And 
either Americans or like particular small groups of like renegade uh, soldiers or our you know army generals or whoever are the villains. So that's kind of interesting that uh, they became we, we we flipped it on its ear eventually at a certain point that uh, they became less and less of uh, the the villains. But you're right, they definitely made convenient villains. Now that it, now that it's over. Well, I guess you could still make a movie set in the Cold War, but I don't know. It wouldn't be. It feels like Nazis are now the de facto. If you're going to white go, from, guy, if you're going to go historical, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. And you know, now I just it's interesting to look at big kind of action movies now, where especially international with international scope, right? You know, the bad guys are much more complicated usually. You know, right? When you especially dealing with someone who's I don't know a terrorist of any sort right but we want to sell tickets in russia now right, russia exactly. is our ally we want and that's a market so we can't have bad guy russians that would look bad in russia people won't buy the tickets in russia so do you have any are there any other cold war films that you want to bring up well i don't think either of us is mentioning dr strangelove no to me, that's, like the that, that's the ultimate cold war movie agreed um, so we should at least mention that, uh, you know, we don't do memorial lists on this film spotting, but I think you can, uh, you can memorial list Dr. Strangelove as the ultimate Cold War movie. Yeah. And maybe that's the other thing to say is just how there's often a, a sort of absurd bent to some, uh, Cold War movies, even the more serious ones, just because, you know, the fate of the world is on the line and these, you know, these regular people often, or these... These people in extraordinary circumstances who are ordinary people have to make these decisions with the fate of the world resting on them. And that can be – well, on the one hand, it can be very dramatic, right? I mean the stakes, to steal another term from Film Spotting Original Recipe, the stakes in Cold War movies are often as high as they can be because often it's somebody in a submarine somewhere who has to decide – to do something or not do something, and if they make the wrong decision, World War III is going to start. Like, it's literally life or death, not just for the people on screen, but for everyone in the world. So that can be very dramatic. On the other hand, the fact that we're talking about this, I mean, it suggests just how absurd at times the Cold War was, that the that tensions were that high and that the, uh, the, the stakes were that high and that – these people and and that ordinary people who probably in some cases weren't qualified to make these decisions were making them and that can make for some great humor which was the case in something like Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, and I feel like we should also mention that this was a great era for spy movies yes. because the Cold War was, you know, a cold war. Yes. It was never conducted openly. So right. all of like the CIA, right, came into being after World War II and really you know, was consumed by the Cold War for the beginning of its existence. And I mean, that's, that's an interesting medium into itself, the whole, yes. like the spy, the spy genre that came out of that moment, that, that era. It's true. It's a great point. And I, one of my three picks is a spy movie for sure. The word spies is in the title. One of the other ones could almost qualify. Actually, both of the other ones are kind of in a gray area where they could almost be spy movies. And really there's almost any spy movie from between like 1960 and 1990 has some sort of, Cold War, you know, stuff in it. Well, my first pick is one that is actually about open warfare, and I feel like we oh. had to we had to mention it because it's Red Dawn, which is you know the 1984 original, not the recent remake, which kind of famously was supposed to be about China invading until they realized not that, supposed to be. It was they made it with well, China until in they realized it. Yeah. that the Chinese market is incredibly valuable internationally, right. and that the, the Chinese found it really offensive <laughs> to be suggested as like the invaded, invading power. Right. Uh, and so they, after the fact, switched them to the North Koreans, 
which is kind of even less plausible an invasive force. Which is why they could do it, because, yes. you know. And, you know, and North Korea, who's going to get angry about that? Yeah. Who knows? They're not going to show the movie either way. That's yes. basically why they're allowed to be, you know, scapegoated. Scapegoated, yeah. yes. But so Red Dawn, the original, which is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google, Vudu, and YouTube, directed and co-written by famous Hollywood character John Milius, who also, of course, wrote Apocalypse Now, Dirty Harry, the first two movies, directed Conan the Barbarian, and is an outspoken conservative which you certainly can see in this movie, uh, which is like a really amazing, like right-leaning fantasy of the Soviets and Cubans and Nicaraguans invading the U.S. While the European countries, bah, they pull out of NATO. It and- could happen, Allison. It could happen at any moment. <laughs> and of course, not the the invasion is not of the U.S. so much as it is of Middle America. They take Middle America. The that most is... American-y. Exactly. The Americanist America. America. So, you know, it goes through this really kind of, like, quick scenario in which to try and explain how Soviet forces could end up parachuting into a classic American small town in Colorado. And then it goes on to be this real fantasy of righteous American anger because these people are literally taking our freedom. Right. They imprison people and put them in re-education camps and they right. occupy the town. Right. And finally, know, America is the underdog again, Allison. Exactly. Finally. That's it. I mean, like, I think what's really amazing about this film, and it is, it is like both really kind of like fundamentally, I think, offensive, depending on where you stand on, you know, the political scale, but also like, it's a great piece of entertainment. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and like, kind of rah-rah, like nationalism. America! Exactly. But it does, it feeds right into this particular, you know, desire to have like righteous anger, right? Mm -hmm. And to protect our country. West Coast. East Coast. Down here is Mexico. First wave of the attack came in disguised as commercial charter flights, same way they did in Afghanistan in 80. Only they were crack airborne outfits. They took these passes in the Rockies. So that's what hit Calumet? I guess so. They coordinated with selective nuke strikes, and the missiles were a hell of a lot more accurate than we thought. They took out the silos here in the Dakotas, key points of communication. Like what? Oh, like Omaha, Washington, Kansas City. Gone? Yeah, that's right. Filtrators came up illegal from Mexico. Cubans, mostly. They managed to infiltrate SAC bases in the Midwest, several down in Texas, and wreaked a hell of a lot of havoc, I'm here to tell you. They opened up the door down here, and the whole Cuban and Nicaraguan armies come walking right through, roll right up here through the Great Plains. The story is basically that the town occupied this group of teenagers, uh, including many of the great stars of the era, Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Leah Thompson, Charlie Sheen, Jennifer Grey. They end up becoming uh, like this guerrilla group that they call themselves the Wolverines in honor of their school mascot Mm -hmm. and become like a serious uh, problem for the occupying Soviets. And this film at the time was like considered one of the most violent of all times. It was also, I think, the first PG-13 movie, for whatever that's worth, but uh, one of the first. Uh, it, it is like a great artifact of the era, and it is kind of amazing that it got made. I think, you know, just that it speaks to this particular feeling uh, 
of not just fear, but like almost like longing for direct engagement, you know, like yeah. on direct engagement. That's like not our fault. Wouldn't it be great if they would invade us, us and so we, we would, could fight, we could fight back and, yeah, and with our arms that yes. we are legal, you know, entitled to by the constitution. There's actually even a moment, there's a scene in which uh, there you see, uh, you know, from my pry this gun out of my cold dead hands bumper sticker. And then the camera kind of pans down to someone who been shot and someone actually takes the gun out of their hands uh but it is uh. <laughs> it and and also the the soviets uh when they take over the town they play alexander nevsky for free at the movie theater <laughs> it's, it's it's kind Forgot of that part it's an amazing movie yeah. it really is and i can't believe they ever tried to remake it because it's it's already so audacious as a, like as a like 1984 film, really you can't make a, a current present day equivalent. But that is Red Dawn. It is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, Google, and YouTube. All right, there's a there's a classic Cold War movie for you. My first pick is a movie that I think uh, probably would jump to mind for a lot of people. Uh, it certainly has some uh, at least some setting connections to our main review this week. And yet, I had never seen this movie before, which is kind of inexplicable because it's so, it's very popular amongst our generation. The Hunt for Red October. I'd never seen The Hunt for Red October. You've never seen it. I had never seen it. Uh, John McTiernan, of course, coming off of Die Hard. Uh, I think this was his direct follow-up to Die Hard, wasn't it? I think so. And uh, stars Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin playing the first Jack Ryan. Maybe the character, Ellison, with the most convoluted franchise in history. He's had... Yes. One, two, three, four. He's got a fifth movie coming out this winter, actually, with Chris Pine in the role. I think that movie is just going to be called Jack Ryan. Um, it's interesting that I feel like they've never tried to base a franchise around him necessarily. But you they, know, he's but in these. He's movies. in these movies. Well, the the two Harrison Ford ones sort of were. This was this was this one is Alec Baldwin plays this kind of like a CIA operative. Like a he's not even a field agent. He's like an intelligence. Uh, guy, he sits at a desk basically. But so he's in this movie, and then he was in Patriot Games, and then Clear and Present Danger, and then they had Ben Affleck play right. him in one movie, The Sum of All Fears, I think. And that one. These are all the most interchangeable titles. Yeah, well, that's that's the Tom Clancy, exactly. uh, the, the Tom Can Clancy magic for you. So anyway, this is the Hunt for Red October. This is the first Jack Ryan film. He is an intelligence agent who gets sort of stuck in the middle of, or kind of embroiled in this. Saga involving this submarine, the Red October, which kind of has this new high-tech engine, which is silent. And so the captain, has, which, who's played by Connery, has this, this agenda, which at first we don't really understand. And I guess if you haven't seen it, it, it would be a spoiler to kind of say what exactly he's doing. But basically, it's the hunt, not just by uh, the U.S., but by the Soviets as well, for this kind of like rogue or missing submarine piloted by Connery. We're going to talk a little bit more about accents in the next in the next film. I, I know it's a little absurd, but I, I think this is the way to do it. I like the way that they handle the fact that Sean Connery is, is, is spoiler alert, is not Russian in this movie, where they have the characters in the in the Russian submarine. At first, they're speaking in Russian with subtitles, and then they do this kind of thing, which I don't know if I've ever seen in another movie before, where they like zoom in on one guy's mouth as he's speaking in Russian. And then they pull back, and he's speaking in English. And now, at, from that moment on, everyone's just speaking in English, and we just sort of understand that these people it's are Russian, Russian yeah. but they're speaking in English, but they don't speak with Russian accents.
accents. You know, Sean Connery talks like Sean Connery. He's he's not. Thank God, he's not pretending to do a Russian accent. <laughs> he just speaks like with his normal Scottish accent, and that's great because it it lets him have this gravitas. And when he has these like very you know, Sean Connery speeches. Once more, we play our dangerous game and all that. He can do it as himself and be very comfortable. Comrades, this is your captain. It is an honor to speak to you today, and I'm honored to be sailing with you on the maiden voyage of our motherland's most recent achievement. And once more, we play our dangerous game. A game of chess against our old adversary. The American Navy. For 40 years, your fathers before you and your older brothers played this game and played it well. But today, the game is different. We have the advantage. Now, it reminds me of the heady days of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, when the world trembled at the sound of our rockets. Well, they will tremble again at the sound of our silence. The order is, engage the silent drive. And actually, I could be mistaken, but I actually think that speech, the famous speech that he gives to the whole submarine about once more we play our dangerous game, I could be wrong, but I think that was actually uh, unscripted rewrite by John Milius, of all people, <laughs> writing that. And I think he did a, he did a, a polish on the screenplay. Uh, and so, something he's fantastic something at. Something he's very, yes, he's very skilled at, and, and he did many times. Uh, this is a great movie. It is super entertaining. You know, it, 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 it's fluff. It's just a, you know, it's a great thriller. And I think what really makes it interesting in a Cold War context is how much it's about sort of the unknown, the unknowableness of the enemy's thought processes. Because so much of the movie is about this missing submarine and trying to intuit, like on the part of Jack Ryan, are these guys going to come here and we won't be able to find them because they have this silent engine? Are they going to blow us up? Or maybe do they have more altruistic motives maybe it's not sinister but how do you know that you know the fate of the world is resting in your hands and how do you know that and on the flip side how does the how does the captain played by connery how does he know that the other side is going to correctly interpret his his feelings and there's this scene where they're basically trying to communicate the u.s and these and the red october back and forth using like morse code and and like sonar blips and you just think if one person misinterprets something, everyone is dead in the entire world. And, and so that aspect of it is really fascinating and only ratchets up the stakes. So it's a, it's just a fun movie, very well made. You know, John McTiernan still at the height of his powers. If you're like me and you've just never seen it, it's worth seeing and it is available on Netflix. Yeah, that's a really fun movie. Yeah, it's been it's a long great. time since I've seen it. But oh, I remember it's, it's it like holds one, up. it was one of like the kind of earliest big grown-up movies i remember seeing you know yeah. my dad rented it and we watched it and yeah it was yeah some of the special movie. effects you know the underwater stuff certainly not spectacular but you know it's it, it's all about connery and 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 alec baldwin it's great it's yeah. really it's really good all right my next pick is a doc it's called the man nobody knew a 2011 documentary it is streaming on netflix it's directed by carl colby and it is about his father william colby who was a director of the cia from september 1973 through 1976 after vietnam at a time when the agency was under intense scrutiny from congress um and he was also just uh an intelligence agent who was with the CIA basically from its formation around that time. And this is an interesting film in like one of the things that I think makes it 
a little uneven is also one of the things that makes it most interesting because it's a personal documentary. It's about his father, but it's also about, as the title indicates, someone who was very difficult to get a read on. He was a spy and then a spy master. And it, it as much as the film kind of runs through all the things he, that we know he did, you know, in terms of both he uh, worked at, when they were stationed in Italy, he worked to do things against the kind of in opposition to the Communist Party in Italy, later participated in counterinsurgency actions uh, in South Vietnam. It makes this interesting case that all of the things that make you a great spy make you kind of a terrible regular human being, right? Like you don't, you're like kind of closed up, you're guarded, you don't trust anyone, you keep secrets instinctively, you you always come up with like shields, basically, which in terms of like as a father figure at home, not really a great <laughs> quality to have. Yeah. And so I think as a personal doc... The the film like actually has a lot of trouble with that aspect because as a father he was so kind of opaque. There's one part where um, Colby, who narrates it, says he was tougher, smarter, smoother, and could be crueler than anybody I ever knew. I'm not sure he ever loved anyone. And at the same Happy time, Father's Day, right, everybody. Father's Day. And at the same time, you know, the film makes a very like a case for Colby as like not just competent, but also as someone who dealt with like making the CIA as close to transparent as the CIA ever was during this time when he was addressing Congress and hearings and all of that. Your dad came in to take over the station from a guy who wasn't suited for dealing with the Vietnamese at all. The Vietnamese were completely disorganized and disheartened because the Geneva Accords and the ceasefire agreement had been signed without their participation. It had no say in it whatsoever. And all of a sudden, their country was being divided in half. So it's, it's I, an, as I said, an uneven documentary, but a really interesting one, especially if you, like I, as someone who doesn't know a ton about the CIA's history, I thought it kind of served as an interesting nonfiction counterpoint to say the film the good shepherd you mm-hmm. know which is about a character who is also uh, i think becomes like uh, the head of the cia and has a family that he spends like no time with and is very remote from mm-hmm. it kind of it seems like an interesting nonfiction counterpart from the point of view of one of the kids so uh, that's the man nobody knew it is streaming on netflix that sounds interesting. I never saw that movie. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna add that one to my queue because I, I like the sound of that. And actually, I've I've got a documentary of my own that mm. I can pair with it, and it's uh, certainly timely uh, this week to watch it as well. But it's about the Cold War. It's called The Most Dangerous Man in America: Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, and it's about the guy who probably until a few weeks ago was the most, maybe the most famous guy who leaked government secrets, uh, maybe in history. The film is directed by Judith Ehrlich and Rick Goldsmith, and it's available on Hulu. And uh, the film is about Daniel Ellsberg, this guy who worked for the Rand Corporation and for you know all these different government agencies, basically working with all of the people who were in charge of the Vietnam War. And he was one of the guys who was f- for the war and basically helping strategize it. And then eventually had a moment where he realized that he was on the wrong side and decided that our policies were not only wrong, but that they were basically built on like fundamental lies, essentially, that in order to bring us into these wars, our presidents had manipulated the facts and they had fudged the truth or they had flat out lied about what happened and and 
what our reasons for being there were, and he decided that uh, he was going to show people that by taking this internal document, these things that became known as the Pentagon Papers, which were like 47 volumes of of uh, documents, photocopying them all in secret, and then he first tried to give them to congressmen and senators to see if they would do something about it, and when they didn't, he brought it to the New York Times, and then it became a huge scandal and a, and a, a story as the papers were leaked little by little, and Nixon was the president at the time, and he was trying to destroy him and uh, prevent them from being out. You know, they would file injunctions against these newspapers, and then the newspapers, he would basically leak them to another paper when each newspaper would be enjoined against, essentially. I think that the drama that surrounded the release of the papers, which centered on the personality and experience of Dan Ellsberg himself, gave the papers a prominence that they probably wouldn't have had had a grayer personality been associated with this release. That much applause without even doing a monologue? That's amazing. Is there any way to answer in 30 seconds what people can do? I think one thing that people will conclude when they read it is that they have not asked enough. They have not expected enough or demanded enough in the way of boldness, in the way of responsibility from their public servants. Make that known, and I think that our Constitution will continue to function better than it has been in the past. And uh, it's a fascinating film. Uh, It's told mostly from his perspective. He's interviewed in it. He narrates a lot of it, speaking sort of his own um, recollections and talking about how he felt at the time. So it gives you a pretty interesting uh, look inside the mind of someone who would do something like this. And as we have this whole ongoing scandal story with this this guy who was leaking NSA documents and revealing the status of these secret government surveillance programs, it seems like an interesting time to watch this movie to get some perspective on this. I think Daniel Ellsberg has actually commented on the current situation saying – some stuff about it, which you can find. So I thought it would be an interesting time to watch this movie in particular as a Cold War movie that has some modern relevance. I found it very interesting. It probably would be worth watching in any circumstance, but this time especially, it's particularly relevant. It's called The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, and it is available on Hulu. All right. My last pick is actually not a movie. It is a TV show. And it's one that I felt like we had to mention when we brought up this topic. It is The Americans, which is the 2013 FX series, which uh, recently wrapped its first season. It's available for rent on iTunes, Amazon, Google, and Vudu. Created by Joe Weisberg, who is a former CIA officer, actually. And it's set in 1981 and is about two deep cover KGB spies, Elizabeth and Philip. Jennings, played by Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese, who are posing as a suburban couple in a DC suburb. And it's a really interesting portrayal of, in a way, it's a portrayal of a marriage and of a, a kind of immigrant story in that they are basically fighting assimilation, right? In that they've been undercover as normal Americans for years and years. And one of them, Philip, is more comfortable with the country, whereas Elizabeth kind of has still, she keeps to the party line more. And they're also in an arranged marriage uh, that may or may not become, you know, kind of slowly making its way towards becoming real. They have two children who don't know anything 
about their parents' secret lives. And I, and yet, I think one of the things that the, the TV show does really well is to portray, as you said, that kind of idea of guessing at motivation. There's a, an episode early on in the series uh, that's centered around the assassination attempt on President Reagan. And the two, when they learn about it, before anyone knows what happened, what motivated the attack, when they think maybe it came from their side, you know. And then there's there, there's an incident in which Secretary of State Alexander Haig kind of said that he was in control there while uh, Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush was not back in the White House yet. Right. And they interpret this as a coup. They start referring to it as a coup, yeah. right? And they they are really they're very worried about like Haig being someone who was kind of more uh warlike. They they wonder if they should contact uh Russia and basically like say this time basically like start a war. Mm-hmm. And then there's a moment kind of eventually later on where where one of the characters is like, you know, this isn't a coup. Like this isn't there hasn't been a coup. Like that's not how this country works. And uh, there are moments like that, that that come up that I think are really interesting in terms of just, yes, that idea of being like, how well do you understand? Since, especially when, as in many of the, the titles we talked about, uh, portrayals that come from the uh, of the kind of Soviet side, like the American side, it seems like both sides saw themselves as playing defense mm-hmm. all the time. And yet, like, it's not our fault. We're just kind of keeping up. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to see that kind of from the perspective of people who are like embedded in like very average suburbia is is pretty interesting. It's a really it's a it was a very good it's a very good drama. It's been renewed. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, if you didn't see it while I was on air, it is it's worth a look. That's the Americans. It is it is available for rent on iTunes, Amazon, Google and Vudu. All right. I haven't seen it yet. I've been hearing some good things about that show. I guess I've got to check it out. All right. My last pick is also about uh, spies, but for but but for our side, spies for our side. Another movie from my childhood, which inexplicably, I, I guess I haven't seen. I'm not sure what this one was rated. Maybe it was rated R and I wasn't allowed to see it. I'm not sure. It's sort of it's right in between. It's hard to say off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up. Um, while I'm talking, it's Spies Like Us from 1985, directed by John Landis and available on Amazon Prime. This one, uh, speaking of, of Dr. Strangelove, this movie is like, what if, you know, Crosby and, and Hope had made, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope now, had made <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. Like, if they had made a road comedy, their movies like, you know, Road to Morocco and all of those road uh, movies where they made as buddies traveling around and getting into misadventures. What if they had made that, but in a way that was like, Dr. Strangelove, that had the Cold War as a backdrop and had them kind of inadvertently bumbling into a scenario where they could accidentally start World War III and destroy the entire world. So this it, it's not about Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, obviously. It's, it's Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, but it's clearly done in a way that is paying homage to those kinds of films. There's even a Bob Hope cameo in one scene. He shows up. Uh, as himself, essentially, holding a golf club in the middle of uh, wherever, whatever country they're at at the moment, just, you know, makes a Bob Hope joke and then wanders off. It's really it's really random, but it's very funny. The story was by uh, Aykroyd, I believe, co-written by Aykroyd and, and Dave Thomas, of all people. He uh, co-wrote the screenplay as well with Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. And Chevy Chase is Emmett Fitzhume, and Dan Aykroyd is Austin Milbarge. They're essentially, it's, it's very Trading Places-ish. It's these two guys who are sort of unknowingly being controlled by forces, unseen forces. In this case, they are essentially um, different 
guys who work in the government, in the intelligence world in the government, who are basically drafted to be spy decoys. They're sent over to the Middle East to distract anybody who might catch on to this secret American operation. While real spies are doing that, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd are bumbling, and and, and they're supposed to attract any attention that might mess up this operation, the secret operation. But, of course, they uh, do attract attention, but then they become involved in the actual operation as well. Not one of John Landis's best films. I've seen just about all of them. This is like the last one of the last movies of his that I had never seen. I've never seen his very first movie, but I think that's it. I've seen all the other ones. I love John Landis, and uh, this one I had somehow just never seen, never gotten around to catching up with, and I enjoyed it. It's, it's certainly not his best film, but it, it it is really funny. And Chase and Aykroyd are great together, and there are some really great moments. I particularly enjoyed the sort of. The, the training montage where they're being trained to be spies. And it's mostly just really silly, broad comedy. Like they go in one of those centrifuge things. We will now determine your G-force threshold. Just relax, gentlemen. I guess we just sit here? Piece of cake. That's a good idea. Really broad, cheesy <laughs> stuff. It really is like kind of a kid's movie in a lot of ways. I'm not sure what it was rated. I got to look that up. But um, I think it probably would be most enjoyed by the immature of all ages, I suppose, because <laughs> it's very, very silly. And uh, oh, it's rated PG. So um, I, there you go. It, it, it was cracking me up left and right. I was just having a, a, an enjoyable time just uh, watching it. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that I saw it right after I watched our main review this week, which is not a laugh riot. No, not a laugh riot. And this w- this provided me with some much-needed comic relief. But I enjoyed it. It's Spies Like Us. It's available on Amazon Prime. In the history of the Soviet Navy, no sailors have been given such a boat as K-19. It is the finest submarine in the world. You have been given the honor to be her crew. I have been given the honor to be your captain. Without me, you are nothing. Without you, I am nothing. Much is expected of us. We will not fail. And it's time for our listener's choice review. And this week, from a trio of war films, including Platoon by Oliver Stone and The Steel Helmet by Sam Fuller, listeners picked K-19 The Widowmaker by one of the narrowest margins in the history of our listener's choice reviews. I think when time expired on the vote, K-19 had won by two wow. votes. By two votes. But from the Platoon. Platoon came in second. The Steel Helmet was a distant third. But two votes, Allison, changed the course of this podcast forever, and how appropriate, given the subject of K-19, which is a film about how tiny moments 
can have enormous consequences. A faulty valve or some kind of pressure doohickey on this Soviet Union's new flagship submarine, the K-19, causes its nuclear reactor to break down and leak radiation, and the crew of the ship have to not only repair the leak under the deadliest of conditions, they have to measure whether or not to accept the help of a nearby American ship, thereby risking their reputations and their careers, or perhaps to make the ultimate sacrifice and scuttle the ship and its increasingly unstable core to prevent an explosion that could spark World War III. K-19, The Widowmaker, was made in 2002. It was the last film from director Catherine Bigelow for almost half a decade before she came roaring back into the spotlight with her Oscar-winning film The Hurt Locker and her controversial Osama Bin Laden war hunt movie Zero Dark Thirty. Allison Bigelow made other movies on other subjects. Allison Bigelow's made other movies on other subjects, like Near Dark, which is about vampires, and Blue Steel and Point Break, which are about cops. Uh, but these last three films together represent something of a trilogy about men in war. So I'm wondering how you feel K-19 stacks up with those other two movies, Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, and whether you see any other specific similarities between the films beyond the general subject matter. That's an interesting question. I think that it's certainly the weakest of the three. I don't mm -hmm. know that there would be any way to argue that. But I think that one of the things that's interesting about that proposed trilogy is that I think The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty are both, in a way, reactions against a typical Hollywood structure. Mm -hmm. The Hurt Locker is really about, if you'd actually have like a kind of wild man Yahoo character of an action movie in a realistic scenario, but how kind of disturbing it would be, uh -huh. you know? And then Zero Dark Thirty is a procedural, really, that takes place in this war story, and it's just about the work, right? Mm -hmm. About the endless work that goes into this without necessarily any signs that you're on the right path. And one of the, I think, things that's very difficult about K-19, The Widowmaker, is that it's not a very easy Hollywood story, but this is a Hollywood movie. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I kind of get. I think I know. Go, go ahead. Because Explain like this, it, it is like a kind of it's a glossy hundred million dollar movie with you know kind of very like no expense spared. Yeah, it looks expensive. It looks expensive. It's got you know a big cast crowded into this set the of the of the submarine. It has some kind of I think like one of the best moments, which is when they have to deal with the choice of how to fix the the reactor like it's staged really well and very dramatic but it's not a story that kind of comes to a rousing conclusion it's not a story that even i think like even its moments of like heroism and the kind of the the moments it it closes on before the the kind of end end chapter are they're kind of uneasy they don't sit very well in that in its form mm. it's a question about whether or not to be loyal really to like be loyal to your country or to be loyal to your crew. And I, I think that it's never really sure what part of those to salute. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, one of the main ideas behind the story is that the the government failed these men. They sent right. them out on a boat that was not ready. Right. That was like dramatically understaffed and that or like in, in terms of like good, the right goods, uh, the right medicine, the right staff members. I think they even say they don't have a backup cooling system. They don't system, have a backup cooling system. Which would have prevented all of this from happening. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but it is about that. And yet, I I feel that there are times when it's not really sure how to deal with loyalty to the state 
you know, in that way. So I, I feel like it's kind of muddied and, and there might be a darker movie that you would imagine working better with this story than what is ultimately turned out, which is not a laugh riot, as you said. <laughs> uh, it's hard to imagine a darker movie at times than this one. I mean, I thought this is... This is pretty dark. It's pretty hard to watch. I mean, those sequences where they're fixing the reactor, I thought were brutal. I mean, I thought they were absolutely brutal to watch. Definitely. And, you know, um, I I don't know if I said it in my introduction. I think I mentioned it when we were describing uh, this as a listener's choice option last week. This movie was not a big hit. You know, you said it was an expensive movie to make. Boxofficemojo.com says the the budget was about $100 million and says that it made $65 million worldwide, not just in the United States. It made $35 million in the United States and about $30 million elsewhere. So this was not a successful movie. And Allison, sometimes when a movie is a flop, uh, even but it's good, you go, how did this movie flop? It's got all these great people. It's got all this great cast. How did this movie should have made a billion dollars? I think this is a good movie, but it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that it didn't make a lot of money i mean who who would want to watch this movie well that's the thing i think is that it it's in this blockbuster kind of it looks like it should be a blockbuster right it's got these harrison ford liam neeson it's about it's this big war movie submarine movie but it's about basically people desperately trying to survive right as radiation starts spreading throughout people dying slowly of radiation poisoning and fairly graphic terms i mean they don't really maybe you know Thank God I don't have a lot of experience with radiation poisoning, so I don't know. Maybe it is sugar-coated a little bit, but it doesn't feel sugar-coated. And they don't seem to shy away from that. I mean, it really is about – the movie is about sacrifice and yeah. about what these guys were willing to do. I think I think ultimately more for their, their fellow crew member, you know, for, for, for each other. And uh, it's, it's tough to watch. I mean, what's interesting when you talk about how it's it's sort of taking this un-Hollywood story and kind of putting it into a Hollywood context. I mean, the budget, the size of the movie, the actors. Uh, the other thing I would say without spoiling it is the, is the, really the ending, which isn't a happy ending per se, but certainly is like desperately trying, like almost like fumbling in the dark. Exactly. For any sort of uplift, uplift it yeah. can find. You know, there's a couple of scenes – there's an epilogue, which is I thought was really awkward yeah, and stiff and did not work. And even before that, though, are sort of the last few scenes before the epilogue where they're trying to kind of – the music starts to swell. And it's the, the, the movie almost suggests that this is a victory in some ways for these men, which I suppose for the guys that lived, it was. But on the other hand, this is a very hollow victory if it is one. And And – uplifting ending even as it sort of made the more brutal scenes harder to take it almost felt like totally inappropriate to me i don't know what you thought yeah no i agree and I, even before that there are moments in which there's kind of a battle over command of the ship I, you know i don't want yes. to go into too much but i feel like even how that was resolved was kind of problematic to me especially given like the people who are involved in suggesting the mutiny which you know are it's like his most loyal it's his most loyal kind of like follower on the ship and then the guy who's a representative of the party so he's the guy who has the political authority so what did you think other than i i think we would both agree like the best and most difficult to watch sequence is the one in which like these characters are trying to fix this fix the generator or the, that's the radi- the radiation is like going higher and higher and higher and, and mm-hmm. any minute you spend in there just makes you worse uh what did you think of kind of the rest of the staging of the movie i feel like we didn't have the thing that is like the thing that kills me every time i watch a submarine movie which is the like 
going down and then the pressure threatening. Well, they did a little they bit of that. They did a little bit of that, but I feel like you didn't have that, like, the real creaking and the, like, this is going to implode under the pressure. There was a little of that. that when they when Harrison Ford does one of these drills, he takes them down to, takes like, crush them. Right, right. And there is a sequence where they're all kind of ominously standing and looking at the hull, and the hull on the outside is kind of crumpling a little uh-huh. bit, like it's made out of tinfoil. Yeah, yeah. So there was a little, bit, a of little that. bit of that. I mean, the thing that I liked the best about the staging was just, I mean, and it is sort of a, it's a, again sort of a cliche thing of submarine movies was just the 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 shots uh like the long takes moving through the ship there's a couple of really nifty camera moves where the camera goes you know like down a staircase and through the hallways and you just see how claustrophobic and how tiny this ship is and the cramped quarters and the low bulkheads all those sequences where we're moving quickly through the space and we do get a good sense of just how uncomfortable it is i mean even before there's radiation leaking this is an uncomfortable to watch before, movie before it leaves the dock even really I think right. one of the earliest shots going through the boat right. is yeah it's the movie puts you up. at ill at ease almost immediately and so i thought all of that was very effective i thought the setting and the use and i thought the set too just it seemed like a very plausible actual submarine like even in contrast with the hunt for red october the submarine, and maybe this is just true of a you know a early '60s versus mid '80s submarine. That the submarine in Hunt for October is kind of big, almost. You know, the 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 main area where they all stand around is high ceilings. You know, <laughs> even like the 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 room where they all sit together around the table and eat, like high ceilings. You know, it just doesn't seem as uncomfortable. K nineteen, it just you just feel claustrophobic in there. And I think uh, Bigelow does a really effective job of putting us inside this very claustrophobic space. How about the actors? We've made fun of oh, the yeah. accents. Uh, is it as problematic as I'm teasing or not? Well, I, I think that Ford's accent is certainly not very good. And it also comes in and out. Uh, in Sometimes he's just talking like Harrison Ford. And then other times he's suddenly like, oh, right, I'm Russian. And he, he does that. But it's also just not a great Harrison Ford performance. He's kind of leaning very hard on the gruff the gruff aspect of his skill sets. Right. And it makes, I mean, he's already a kind of difficult character to latch onto at all, given right, what he does. Right, because his character is such a jerk. He's such a jerk. Right. And he endangers the lives of, like, his men. And Harrison Ford does not help it any in this role. And, like, Liam Neeson is so much better at this type of role, at being kind of this, like, man's man who's like there who's beloved by his crew who will like get in there and like help load nuclear missiles with them you know like who's uh you know he just seems like much more at ease Mm -hmm. which is part of the character but also just he looks much more at ease in this movie yeah and we have a few other uh recognizable actors in there we've got uh michael gladys who's paul kinsey from mad men i recognize him yes without his beard without his beard he looked kind of like bigger too maybe a little peter sarsgaard who is in a bigger role as the kind of newbie who's brought in to oversee the he's the nuclear, nuclear expert on yeah. board who's been brought on board to replace someone else who who ford's character kind of maybe uh, foolishly or you know fired too quickly and so they have to replace it, this experienced nuclear expert with a novice and that of course has ramifications as well i, I will say i mean that i thought uh, peter sarsgaard gave a good performance though yeah. i mean he has some tough scenes to play uh, and and I like the fact that it wasn't, uh, you know, that his character and some of the others, but mostly him, really did give us a little bit more of a, a spectrum of reactions that seemed believable as opposed to just people willing to sacrifice everything, they're including their lives for the good of the country or the, the crew. I like that there were some people who 
wanted to mutiny, wanted to jump off the ship, wanted you know refused to help. We're afraid. We're we're afraid. Exactly. There's a human element here that's uh, very well done. But yeah, it is a. I mean, I would. It's like the one of the kind of movie where you would recommend it, but you would also go, you know, uh, you're not going to want to watch it more than once. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, Bigelow is. Uh, I think has an interesting as a director has an interesting appreciation for like male friendships particularly I think yes. even in like Point Break in the Hurt Locker what did you think of her portrayals of kind of the camaraderie or lack thereof on the on the ship um, I thought it was uh, was okay I think she's done a better job of that in other movies uh, I did sort of certainly notice that this is a movie directed by a woman which are there any female characters at all there's a picture of there are, Peter Sarsgaard's fiance yes there's a there's a picture of a woman <laughs> and they refer to Harrison Ford's wife right you know, that he married like her politically or, connected yeah they perhaps married her to advance his career but that's it so I, I thought that was sort of interesting um but I don't know I mean some of the um, minor characters they they all sort of fell together to me in some ways that they they weren't maybe as well differentiated as they could have been um, maybe that's just a function of they didn't have enough of running time to make them all characters uh, the best relationship in the movie is between Ford and Neeson but Ford isn't even that great in the movie right so that's sort of problematic yeah yeah I agree and I, you know I think I, watching this I was kind of I did wonder it was like, whose idea was it to make this into a movie? In a way, you know, like, I think... I thought the same thing. I was like, just like, I wants- don't, this is not good material for a movie. Right. <laughs> you know, like, it is like, as a story. Right. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And, you know, the things that these men did were remarkable. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, like like you said, there's no, there's no hook for an audience that, like, makes it worth the suffering other than the suffering. If you want to see a very sensitive, like, effective portrayal of sacrifice and suffering this movie does it but uh, there's not much more to it than that and certainly you do wonder not just like why they made it because you can understand i mean it's, it is a great story but like why you make it for a hundred million dollars right. why didn't anyone say no one's gonna want to see this movie guys it's incredibly depressing i don't know so i mean i'm i mean i, I was glad to see it but it's you know it's what i think uh you know film spotting uh, original recipe calls a one-timer i'm not gonna watch this movie again i would be a very long time before i think about watching it again because it is I mean, I was sitting there during those uh, reactor scenes just going, oh, God, this is horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Well, that is K-19, The Widowmaker. It is streaming on Netflix. Let's wrap things up with Behind the Eight Ball, our countdown of three new releases, two listener recommendations, and one random film chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Allison, you're going to go first. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's begin with three new releases. All right. My first new release is Upstream Color, which is new-ish to Netflix now, directed by Shane Carruth, uh, starring Amy Simetz. This is Shane Carruth's long-awaited follow-up to Primer, which we talked about on an episode a few months ago. A few... A few people have asked us whether or not we were going to put this up as a listener's choice pick. We just wanted to throw it in here to say not yet. Uh, given that we talked about Cruz, one of Cruz's movies not that long ago, it seems like we don't want to repeat that so you know so soon after. So it's one that we'll you know keep around. I know a lot of people uh, are really interested in this film, but we'll, we're going to give it some time. So that is streaming on Netflix. Streaming on Hulu is Marketa Lazarova. This is a 1967 Czechoslovakian historical film directed... I'm not going to try and say the director's name. It has a lot of accents in it. Let's just say 
that Marketa Lazarova, it's probably the only one by that title out there. It's set in the Middle Ages, and it's about the daughter of a lord who's kidnapped by rogue knights, setting off this kind of long conflict. This was screening at the San Francisco International Film Festival when I was there uh, not that long ago. I didn't get to see it, but I've heard amazing things about it. Uh, I think it's been voted as one of the best Czech films of all times, and now it is streaming on Hulu, so you can check it out if you're up for like a nearly three-hour black-and-white film set in the Middle Ages. Boy, am I. Um, and then also streaming on Redbox, I want to give a mention that Redbox, which the kiosks, uh, DVD rental service have now started their own streaming sites, okay. which you can, you can do a subscription and they have much more Redboxy titles. So if you're looking for kind of uh, esoteric niche content, this is not the place you're probably going to look. It's, it's much more, uh, kind of mainstream films, but they, right. uh, one of their offerings, new offerings is Diner, which is the 1982 Barry Levinson film about a group of friends back in Baltimore for a wedding. Really interesting to see the cast now, given the many directions they've taken uh steve gutenberg daniel stern mickey rourke kevin bacon tim daly paul reiser ellen barkin uh it's a really enjoyable film if you haven't seen it uh it's one that really uh just takes a lot of pleasure in its characters and that is diner it is streaming on redbox all right and that's redbox.com and i think it's like eight bucks a month for their service and you might even get a couple of dvd rentals dvd rentals physical rentals and then you can actually like check to see what is at the kiosk nearest you online okay which is interesting all right yeah, and it so. looks like you can get a free trial if you're curious you can you can try it out yeah, so that's so redbox.com many right. more uh services streaming services spreading out god it's not getting internet. any easier to do no, this it's not at all no all right so how about two uh two listener recommendations all right our first one is from joshua p who recommends weekends which is currently streaming on netflix this is a british movie that came out in 2011 about two uh gay Englishmen who hook up for a one-night stand that turns into something that spans the weekend. He says that, I think this is just a terrific film. The performances are excellent. The writing and direction is superb. And it's a really captivating portrait of a relationship that anyone can identify with, no matter what sexual orientation. I know I'm a big fan of this film. Matt, you as well. Love that film. Uh, so it's definitely one you should check out if you have not seen it. That's Weekend on Netflix. And another Netflix recommendation from Alan H. is Battle Royale. This is the 2000 Japanese film. It's, uh, he says, it is Hunger Games done right. And also came before Hunger Games. So if you want to have that argument about what came first, Battle Royale absolutely won. And is uh, it is a very good film. So another one that's certainly worth checking out. Thank you for the recommendations both. Okay, and how about one random film from your queue? You gave me number 42, which is OSS 117, Cairo Nest of Spies. The Widowmaker? <laughs> the Widowmaker. <laughs> the Breaking Dawn Part 2. Yeah. Um, this is a 2006 film from Michelle... Hazana Vicious. <laughs> Thank you. Who uh, went on to direct The Artist, of course. Um, this is one of two OSS 117 films he made. They're both spy parodies. The other one is Lost in Rio. Starring the Widowmaker. The Widowmaker. Um, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Jean Dujardin <laughs> and uh, Berenice Bejo, who are the two who uh, are star- who starred in The Artist, mm-hmm. are the leads in this. Uh, these are based on a real series of spy films and novels, but these are parodies films um so i've not seen either but you know obviously these are people who went on to do an academy award not like worthy film so it was one that i put on my list a while ago and i've yet to get around to 
All right, Matt, now it is your turn. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, three new films. All right, well, before it was summarily ruined by Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, and Allison's favorite actor, Nellie... <laughs> The Longest Yard was actually a great and kind of bleak comedy from no-nonsense Hollywood craftsman Robert Aldrich. His 1974 version stars Burt Reynolds as Paul Wrecking Crew, the washed-up former NFL quarterback who gets sent to prison and convinced to lead a team of prisoners against a team of prison guards in a football game. The Sandler version was pretty terrible, even with Reynolds in a supporting role, but the original is brutal and sad and funny and awesome, so I recommend that. That is The Longest Yard, and it is available on Netflix. And speaking of brutal and sad, plus a little unnerving, one of my favorite films from last year's Tribeca Film Festival is now on iTunes. It's called Nancy, Please. This drama from director Andrew Siemens is about a writer's-blocked PhD candidate named Paul. He moves out of his apartment and accidentally leaves behind an important and valuable old book. And his ex-roommate uh, Nancy keeps forgetting and then refuses to return it, and it becomes sort of a war of wills. But then it also becomes increasingly unclear whether she's mean and vindictive and cruel or if Paul is a procrastinator, a liar, and maybe even mentally unstable. The movie kind of reminded me almost of One Hour Photo, that kind of vibe. It's sort of like an empathetic character study of a sick person. Uh, and as a writer, the whole idea of being driven insane by the sight of a blank Word document, as Paul kind of is, is certainly something I could relate to. That's Nancy Please, and it's available on iTunes. And finally, available on Netflix for the, the, the So Bad It's Good crowd out there, I definitely recommend Miami Connection. An absolutely insane blend of a ninja movie and I guess almost like a 80s breakdancing movie, although there's not breakdancing. The music, though, is kind of that style. The film was made in 1987 and basically never released. It's about a bunch of friends who are Taekwondo masters. They live together and play together in a band called Dragon Sound where they sing songs about what else living together and being Taekwondo masters. And for reasons that are too silly to explain with a straight face, they get mixed up with a clan of coke-smuggling ninjas. Oh, the 1980s, you are a delight. This movie was co-written and directed by a real Taekwondo master named Y.K. Kim. He also stars in the film, and he can't act. And the <laughs> film is a, a an ode, his ode, really, to the beauty and majesty of Taekwondo and to the beauty and majesty of 80s synth pop. And it's a really powerful cautionary tale about the dangers of coke-smuggling ninjas. Beware the coke-smuggling ninjas, Allison. I know you've thought about hanging out with them a lot. Yeah. But let me tell you, that's a bad idea. Well, now I know. The movie was made by Y.K. Kim in his Taekwondo school with little money and very few skills and quickly forgotten, but it was discovered by a programmer at the Alamo Draft House, and they then acquired the rights and released it in theaters and on DVD and Blu-ray, and now it is on Netflix, and if you enjoy silly, weird, bizarre, hilarious movies, and you hate ninjas... This movie is for you. It's The Miami Connection. All right. And now for two listener recommendations. Okay. This first one comes from Joe Z, who says, I recommend Evocateur, the Morton Downey Jr. movie, available on iTunes and in limited release. I saw it at Tribeca last year and enjoyed it tremendously. I was a bit too young to see this movie when it was on, but the footage in the film is consistently out there and just draw-droppingly hysterical. As influential as he obviously has been, there is no TV show like this anymore. Downey's show is not staged. And unlike most talk and reality circuses today, the feeling of conflict between the host and the guest is very palpable. And the mob-like nature of the Jersey Live audience is something to behold. So that's Evocateur, the Morton Downey Jr. movie that is available on iTunes. I haven't seen that one, but I am actually really looking forward to checking it out. No, sounds it sounds really, really good. Sounds really good. And we've also got a recommendation here from Crystal C., who recommends Machete Maidens Unleashed, which is available on Netflix. She says it's a very enjoyable look 
at the exploitation films made during the 1970s through the 1980s in the Philippines. Uh, the documentary features lots of interviews with Roger Corman and other directors and stars from that period. I've seen that movie. It's a really fun documentary, and it'll certainly give you lots of other movies, uh, recommendations of other titles you may want to rent, and some of them, I believe, are also available. So that's Machete Maidens Unleashed, available on Netflix. All right, and one from your queue. You gave me number 41, which is Vengeance, which is the Johnny Doe film starring Johnny Halliday. Is that it? Uh, I never saw this movie. This one came out a few years ago. It played a can, I believe. Yeah, you saw it, I, Allison. I think I saw it there. Um, I, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's kind of more in the like, you know, big bombastic uh, Hong Kong style, like action style. It's okay. like a throwback to kind of eighties. Halliday plays Costello. He's a skilled chef, but twenty years ago he was a cold blooded killer working for the mob. Does this sound familiar? He travels from France to Hong Kong. Our culinary hero prepares to serve up revenge. Ooh, this is sounding pretty good. On a host of bad guys in this bloody tale from acclaimed action director Johnny Doe. Um, yeah, I, I just never never caught up with it. I have it on my queue. I just haven't gotten around to seeing it at some point. Would you recommend it? It's okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, it's going to stay at number 41, then. It's not going to get bumped up. All right, Allison, it's time to move on to our listener's choice options for our next episode. Last time we had three older titles, three war movies. And this time we've got three new movies. They're all on VOD and iTunes. These are rentals. The first one is Twixt, T-W-I-X-T. It's not about the candy bars. It's directed by Francis Ford Coppola and stars Val Kilmer and Elle Fanning. This was the movie we mentioned earlier in the show. came out at the festival circuit in 2011. Never really got a full release. I would have loved to have seen Francis Ford Coppola remixing this thing live. Oh, at I least in my mind, it looks amazing. Right. With him with the headphones, like nodding his head, like... <laughs> I don't know I if that's what he, he meant. He said but. he used an iPad to do it, no, which is he, a little he used, less. No, he, he used turntables turn somehow. Yeah, somehow. somehow the movie, I just imagine yes. Francis Ford Coppola drinking holding, a bottle of wine. Holding the headphones like to one side yes, exactly. with one hand. Nodding, nodding, yep. and going. <laughs> Val Kilmer has, having his speech like remixed like that. <laughs> Sadly, it was not to be, but we can watch the movie uh, at home. So, uh, you know, I think we mentioned what it's about briefly earlier, but it is uh, some sort of horror movie. Kilmer plays a writer whose career is in decline, and he comes to this small town for a book signing, and he gets involved in a murder investigation. And I think Elle Fanning maybe plays a ghost. I think she's a ghost, yeah. Yeah, so... The movie got very mixed reviews, some of which were very negative, some of which were positive, but I'm, I'm very curious. I'm just fascinated. So that's Twixt. Available on VOD and iTunes. All right. The next film is Stoker, which is Park Chan-wook's first English language film. He's a Korean director who's uh, probably best known for his Vengeance trilogy, which included Old Boy. That was the middle section. Um, uh, Stoker is this kind of gothic drama that was written by Wentworth Miller, actually, star of Prison Break. Mm -hmm. uh, though I think he wrote it, he submitted it under like another name because he didn't want to ride off of the fame of his Prison Break fame. <laughs> I don't want to just keep riding this prison big thing everywhere guys <laughs> it stars mia vasakovska matthew good and nicole kidman uh, nicole kidman plays the mother of uh mia's character and when the father dies his brother played by matthew good who is like kind of new to the family and a kind of sinister guy arrives and from there on we have this kind of coming of age 
thriller story, I suppose you can describe it. It's supposed to be kind of Hitchcockian, but also just surreal and odd and and interesting. It got mixed reviews as well, but it also... More positive, though. They're skewed more towards the positive, yes. certainly. So that is Stoker. It is available on VOD and iTunes. Yeah, that's one I that's on my list of, you know, movies from the first half of the year that I've seen crop up on a few, you know, best so far lists right. that I know I need to catch up with, too. Yes. So that's definitely one that I'm going to have to see at some point. I definitely would enjoy reviewing that one on the show. Our last pick is the one that I have seen, and actually I wasn't a huge fan of, although I, I admired it nonetheless. Um, and that one, this one actually, though, probably has the most positive reviews of the three. I just didn't happen to enjoy it as much as everybody else. It's called Barbarian Sound Studio, and it's directed by Peter Strickland, and it stars Toby Jones as this character named Gilderoy, who is a British Foley artist working on the audio track for an Italian giallo film called The Equestrian Vortex. It's set in sort of the past, you know, during the heyday of, you know, the Italian uh, giallo film industry, and he is sort of brought in to work on this film. And it's hard to describe what happens from there. That's really the setup, not really the plot. It's a little blowout or blow-up-ish, you know, and then there's some giallo stuff in there as well. And it, it also gets very surreal by the end of the movie. The, the narrative kind of falls apart in sort of an interesting way. Interesting, but I don't know, maybe not entirely satisfying. I was sort of with the movie for a while, but I just didn't feel like the the ending was totally satisfying. Mm. Other people, though, love this movie, and yeah. it's another one that's shown up on a lot of lists of, of great films. Of last year, it, it really was released in some areas in theaters last year. I saw it at Fantastic Fest last year. Not one of my favorite films of the festival, but an interesting movie. I would not be opposed to watching it again and, and diving into what I didn't like about it, seeing if I like it more this time. And I, it's always interesting to see a film that's set in like the workings of filmmaking like yes. that. And, and I like Toby Jones a lot. Toby he's Jones a really is really interesting actor. Yeah, and he's good in the movie. And you're right, that would certainly be a good theme for a podcast. We would have lots of movies to talk about, I'm sure. So, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 24th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, July 2nd. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. And don't forget, keep sending your recommendations. We're going to keep sharing them on Behind the 8-Ball. The email address, one more time, is SVU at FilmSpottingSVU.com. And for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Service a boat! Service a boat!